This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. There are some of our favorites. Up next comes a story from Derek Hines. Derek is from Stevensville, Michigan, and attended Michigan State in the rough-and-tumble 90s when the school was, in the words of Derek, much crazier than it is now. While Derek was at Michigan State, he witnessed a tradition that started in the 90s that students love, parents partook in, and school officials weren't fans of, burning couches on game day. Here's our own Monty Montgomery, a Michigan State fan himself, with a story. Michigan State University is a school steeped in legend. And it's a school with a lot to be proud of. And its students and alumni certainly show it on game day. Game day at any school is a spectacle to behold. But in East Lansing, it truly becomes a spectacle even from the earliest hours of the morning. And the students there put on an absolute show. And with show comes tradition. Police are hoping to prevent a repeat of last Saturday when people set furniture on fire in Cedar Village following MSU's win over Penn State. It was insane. I've never seen anything like flames that high before. I mean, I can see how it can be dangerous, but I feel like it's kind of like a Spartan tradition now. Uh, it's something that should not be done. Uh, it's actually against the law to light stuff on fire. Here's Derek Hines, class of 97 who witnessed the start of this tradition. The year was 1997. I was starting my senior year at Michigan State. Go green. Myself and seven others lived in a big old house on Gunson Street. It was right in the mix, a block from the convenience store, fast food, pizza, and the best egg rolls I've ever had. Adds the extra point. Michigan State with 49 points. The Spartan football team beat up on Western Michigan that afternoon, so it ended up being the perfect storm. A win at home combined with 20,000 friends in town from Western. Like many Saturdays, we had a keg, and this weekend, the house was jammed with several friends in town. The dilapidated front porch was packed with green t-shirts and red solo cups. Next door and across the street, there was more of the same. A sea of fired up college kids without a care in the world and with no clue what was about to go down. There were a group of guys breakdancing in the street on a piece of cardboard. I remember the Fat Boy CD playing with everybody singing along. Somehow the cardboard caught fire and the outdoor couch from across the street was dragged into the middle of the street. I'm not talking about a made-in-China wicker Wayfair couch, but a solid wooden, old-school, hand-me-down couch with 25 pounds of plush fabric, beer stains, and cigarette burns. It went up like a Roman candle. But then on top of it, you know, people were throwing other stuff into the, you know, onto the fire. I'm not saying it was like furniture or anything, but definitely there was other debris that, that got thrown on the fire to kind of keep it torching. Then the street was packed with people dancing around the fire. Go green, go white, yell back and forth. 
up and down the block. It was awesome. I'm not really sure how it went south, but someone must have called the cops. Police showed up, way outnumbered, and were shooed away with flying bottles. Not long after, the police came back, this time in full force, shields in full riot gear. Once again, the bottles flew, then rocks, as the cops tried to get control. Even peaceful partiers were targeted when officers made random kids blow breathalyzers and passed out MIPs by the dozen. My roommate opened our front door to a cop who cuffed and stuffed him for the keg. Somehow, cops were inside the house. My underage little sister was asleep in the basement and ordered to come upstairs. She was only 15 and eventually became a Spartan. My roommate spent the night in jail, but nobody else close to me got into trouble yet. My next memory was Monday after class as the media hit the scene. I remember wearing the most obnoxious fluorescent orange polyester shirt and getting on camera. As part of the televised coverage, random photos were posted of rioters. They were offering a thousand dollar reward for info or help identifying these people. The state news posted the same pictures and it was a big laugh that the Dean of Michigan State made the comment that alcohol may have been a factor. I still have a t-shirt with that quote. As time passed, the buzz faded and the street in front of 155 Gunson was patched where the couch had burned. The blemish was there for years, but the road has since been resurfaced. The night will go down in history, whether you call it a bonfire, a riot, a melee, or just a good time. That's how we party when we won against unranked Western Michigan. The next spring, after losing to Duke in the Final Four, protesting turned wild when police busted out their tear gas all over town. They weren't taking any crap this time. I graduated and sort of grew up. I don't burn couches that actively any longer. I return to MSU at least once a year and always cruise Gunson Street to tell this story to anyone who will listen. And you've been listening to Derek Hines and his memory of a couch-burning episode after a home game, well, where alcohol may have been involved. Very funny story. If you've got stories, funny ones, silly ones from your youth, especially tied around sports and college. The way we Americans do these things is quite unique and quite beautiful and very funny. And I love that he said, I graduated and sort of grew up. And I think that speaks for a lot of us. We've graduated and hopefully we've sort of grown up. Derek Hines' story on the first couch burning at Michigan State University. Ghost Spartans here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories, where he's a regular contributor. Here's the History Guy with the fascinating story about the Medal of Honor recipient, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, the age of polar exploration, and the future of aviation. We live in an era where air travel is common. According to the International Civil Aviation Organization, 3.5 billion passengers were carried by scheduled air service in 2015. But if you've flown, the odds are that you flew in a heavier-than-air aircraft, and the general alternative, lighter-than-air air travel, is largely relegated to a leisure activity. But that was not always the case. There was a time when great airships challenged the airplane for dominion of the skies. And the pinnacle of that era was arguably in 1926, with a competition between two of the world's greatest explorers. It's history that deserves to be remembered. In general, aircraft come in two categories. A lighter-than-air aircraft, or aerostat, works by principles of buoyancy. The average density of the craft is lower than the density of atmospheric air, and so rises. Essentially, a bag filled with gas that is less dense than air produces lift. The alternative, aerodynes, fly due to aerodynamic lift, which requires movement of a wing surface through an air mass. In the 1920s, the competition between aerostat and aerodyne took on a particular importance in terms of polar exploration. The period of the end of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th century included what was the so-called heroic age of polar exploration. Explorers from a number of nations went to explore the most hostile and least understood environments on Earth in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. This was called the Heroic Age because technology was limited, conditions were primitive, and the exploration was extremely dangerous and very often deadly. These explorers risked their lives in scientific pursuits, putting their lives on the line for the betterment of the world. These explorations made huge contributions to science, but national prestige was also on the line. Scientific discoveries and first represented national honor, and nations saw it as a way to prove themselves on the international stage. One of the most significant of these contests was the race to get to the poles. Despite little real scientific value in reaching the North and South Poles, they represented the pinnacle of remote exploration at the time, and, for the first time, seemed to be within reach. Being the first to reach one of the poles would gain an explorer, international fame. Norwegian Roald Amundsen was one of the legendary explorers of the heroic age. Born into a family of Norwegian shipbuilders in 1872, he had been inspired by explorers of the 1880s. Between 1910 and 1912, Amundsen led the first expedition to reach the South Pole using sled dogs and arrived at the South Pole on December 14, 1911, five weeks ahead of a rival team led by British explorer Robert Falcon Scott, who died on his return trip. But sometime in the early 1920s, most historians cite the 1920-21 Quest expedition in which legendary explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton died, the heroic age of polar exploration gave way to the mechanical age of polar exploration. The mechanical age of exploration represented a time when the mechanical advancements of the age, notably aircraft and motor cars, changed the nature and method of polar exploration. Now the exploration was not only a test of humans, but of machines. Discovery not only meant national prestige, but it represented the reliability of modern technology, could mean a fortune for the companies who built those technologies. And the pinnacle achievement of the mechanical age, the race to be the first to overfly the North Pole, 
represented two of the greatest explorers of the era. Born in Virginia in 1888, Richard E. Byrd was the quintessential example of the mechanical age of exploration. A pilot with the U.S. Navy during the First World War, he had planned the flight path for the first Atlantic crossing by air, done by the U.S. Navy in Curtis Flying Boats. In 1925, he commanded the aviation unit of an expedition to northern Greenland and had become convinced of the value of aircraft in Arctic exploration. In 1925, Amundsen had tried to fly to the North Pole using flying boats, but when one was damaged during a landing, he and his crew barely made it out with their lives. He became convinced that the best possibility to cross the pole by air was to use an airship and planned an expedition for 1926. The same year, Richard Byrd, then a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, had become determined to fly to the pole in an airplane. It was now a race between Roald Amundsen and Richard Byrd. It was also a race between Aerostat and Aerodyne. While an airplane was faster, as Admonson had learned in his attempt in 1925, if anything went wrong, they had to set down right away, which was not always possible in the Arctic, and taking off again might be impossible. An airship, while slower, could repair its engines in flight if need be. Airships also carried more weight. Amundsen signed a contract with Italian airship designer Umberto Nobili to use his semi-rigid airship, then called the N1. The N1 was 347 feet 9 inches long and 85 foot four inches in diameter, powered by three six-cylinder engines. The N1 was officially sold to the Aero Club of Norway, which was financing the expedition, was modified for cold conditions, and renamed the Norg, meaning the Norway. A wealthy American explorer named Lincoln Ellsworth also helped to finance the expedition and accompanied Amundsen and Nobley on the trip. After several weather delays and a wait to build a docking tower at their jumping-off point at the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen, they finally arrived in April of 1926. For his flight, Byrd decided to use a three-engine monoplane built by the Dutch airplane manufacturer Fokker. The Fokker F7, commonly called the Fokker Trimotor, was one of those popular passenger aircraft of the 1920s. Byrd needed financing, so he had named the plane Josephine Ford after automobile manufacturer Edsel Ford's daughter in order to procure a donation from Ford to fund the trip. When Byrd's ship carrying the Josephine Ford steamed into Kings Bay on Spitsbergen, he found Abinson's ship already taking the only space at the dock. Byrd was forced to last the ship's lifeboats together to carry his airplane to shore. Byrd made his attempt, accompanied by pilot Floyd Bennett, on May 9th. No one had ever taken off using a Fokker trimotor on skis before, and it took three attempts to take off. Eight hours in, one of the engines started leaking oil. Bennett wanted to sit down and try to fix the problem, but the ice below was broken with no place to land. Bird decided to press on as they were only an hour from the pole. At just over nine hours in, they reached the North Pole, winning the race. The return was dicey given the oil leak, but the plane was lighter as it had burned so much fuel and made it back to Spitsbergen. Byrd returned to international acclaim, and the United States awarded him the Medal of Honor. The Norg made its trip two days later, leaving May 11th and reaching the pole on the 12th, three days after Byrd. As they crossed the pole, Amundsen, Ellsworth, and Nobley each threw out their nation's flag to land on the pole. While Byrd had beaten them to the pole, the Norg was the first to fly over the ice cap between Europe and North America, making the voyage important to the understanding of the nature of the ice cap and its geography. But of course, there was a twist. Almost immediately, there were questions whether Bird's calculations were correct, arguing that, given the plane's airspeed, it must have come short of the pole. The controversy became even more heated in 1996, when Bird's diary was released and showed erased but still legible sextant recorders that differ from the official report. 
The controversy rages on today. Byrd went on to become the first person to fly over the South Pole in 1929, became an admiral, and in World War II was a special advisor to Chief of Naval Operations Ernest King. He was present for the Japanese surrender in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945, and helped to establish permanent Antarctic bases in the 1940s and 50s. He died of a heart ailment in 1957, at the age of 68. For a while, airships competed against airplanes and ocean liners for passenger service, but they lost their appeal after the spectacular explosion of the Zeppelin Hindenburg in 1937. And fate played a strange trick on Roald Amundsen and Umberto Nobili. In 1928, Nobley built another airship and named it the Italia, or the Italy, and attempted to make an all-Italian flight over the North Pole. They reached the pole on May 24th, but the following day, caught in a gale, the Italia crashed into jagged ice, destroying the airship. In all, eight of the crew lost their lives, and it took nearly two months to rescue the survivors. And in that, another tragedy. Roald Amundsen, being one of the most experienced Arctic explorers in the world, was called to assist in the rescue. On June 18, 1928, flying in dense fog, the plane in which he was flying along with five other crew members, searching for survivors of the Italia, disappeared. The plane and the remains of the crew were never found. Amundsen was 55. Umberto Nobili survived the wreck of the Italia and passed away in 1978 at the age of 93, the last survivor of the 1926 race to the pole that represented the golden age of the competition between Aerostat and Aerodyne. An age that deserves to be remembered. Indeed, and it's why we bring you these stories, and again, all the history stories we ever bring you are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to the History Guy's YouTube channel, and that's The History Guy, History deserves to be remembered. Just Google his name, the history guy, and you'll find him. A great story, the 1926 treacherous race to the poles, and in the end, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd's story here on Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories, and this is a rule of law story, which takes us to Memphis, not far from where we broadcast in Oxford, Mississippi, to a liquor store owned by Doug and Mary Ketchum called Kimbrough Wine and Spirits. Their quest to own their own business is a horror story of sorts, as it was necessary for the Supreme Court of the United States to make a ruling as to whether or not this couple will be allowed to pursue their American dream. Mary and I met in Salt Lake City, Utah, shortly after uh, my wife passed away in 2009. Well, uh, Doug and I had a lot of similar friends. We kind of knew about each other. I knew who he was, but we'd never really talked or been close. After my wife passed away, she opened up her house for uh, our 
funeral memorial dinner and just got to know her then. That was actually really nice for me because I met all of Doug's family. So when we finally did start dating and decided we liked each other and we're going to get married, I already knew everybody and they already knew me. And so it was, there was no, you know, nobody was scared of anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We got married and Mary was working as a telephone technician, as a uh, network technician. She used to climb telephone poles, just to give you an idea how... Uh, cool she is. <laughs> so. First, when I would go to people's houses and I'd say, you know, I'm the telephone man, uh, it would be funny because you get this odd reaction from people. They'd sit and look at me for a minute. Their brain couldn't quite put it together. <laughs> we were in a position where she could take a little time off. And I have a handicapped daughter that was with a previous marriage. And when we got married, she says, I want to be here to take care of Stacy. So we moved Stacy in with us. Uh, Stacy is um, has cerebral palsy. She was born in 1984, and November of 1985, she suffered an, a drowning accident in my sister's swimming pool in Arizona, and that left her with severe uh, cerebral palsy. She is completely quadriplegic. She can't talk. She can't sit up by herself. She can't walk. Um, she can't do anything by herself uh, from the first. Uh, the first year after her accident, she was in a coma. It took her an entire year to come out of her coma. And I used to have to walk her to sleep outside. She couldn't fall asleep if she was in the house. So every night for three years, I would take her outside for a walk and walk her until she'd fall asleep. And usually it took about between a half hour to an hour. Didn't matter if it was raining or snowing or what was going on. She couldn't fall asleep unless she was outside. Um, But after she slowly came out of her coma, she used to have a, a, a gastrostomy tube, a, a tube in her stomach that we had to feed her through. Um, as she slowly came out of her coma, she started. She had to relearn everything. She had to learn how to swallow, how to how to eat food, and things like that. So it was it was quite a process, and um, spent a lot of years uh, taking care of her and worrying about her. But she is um, she's an angel. She. Um, you know, it's just the uh, the light of our lives. So, having having somebody uh, that was willing to take that on, uh, and and marry me, knowing that um, I had a handicapped daughter that required so much attention and so much um, work to take care of, um, that's a pretty big deal to me. I, you know, I um, overwhelmed every day at you know, the amount of love that Mary has for her and how willing she was to take something on. I don't think that many people could do that. In my mind, that just makes her a rock star. We got married. We moved in. Um, we moved Stacy in with us. And Mary became a full-time uh, mom to a handicapped, a handicapped daughter. She was so sweet, and I could see her just giving me the eye. Are you good enough for my dad? I said to Doug later, I said, she really needs to come and live with us because I can tell her mom's burned out and she needs a break and she's been taking care of her for a really long time. And I says, I don't, honestly, I don't know if I can marry you unless she comes and lives with us because I thought that she needed a little better care and I thought I could do that. So when she first came here, I had a little bit of a learning curve the first, I don't know, three months or so. But after that, it was really easy and it's pretty obvious now that she should be with us. But in 2015, Stacy caught a severe case of pneumonia, and 
Um, we spent about a month and a half in the hospital, and the doctors told us that the air quality was so bad in, in Salt Lake City, especially during the wintertime, that we needed to find a better environment for Stacy, um, or they didn't expect that she was going to last more than about a year. So we started a search and started looking for um, some place to move that had cleaner air and cleaner water, um, some place that would uh, provide us with some kind of opportunity to um, own our own business and allow us to have a little more free time to spend with Stacy because we we don't know how long she's you know going to live. So we ran across an opportunity in Memphis, Tennessee, for uh, and found a liquor store that was for sale. We spent, I don't know, about six or eight months looking at it and negotiating with the previous owner about a sales price and trying to get all of our licensing and all that kind of stuff worked out. In June of 2016, we planned to move. We, we had come to Memphis. We found a house that we liked, and we had made an offer on the business. Everything looked like it was going very well. The ABC board told us that all of our information looked fine. They were going to approve us for a license at the next hearing at the end of June. And we got our city license. And we got our city license in that at the same time, yeah. June comes and they called us, our attorneys called us and says, oh, the ABC board says they lost your paperwork. We're going to have to refile it. So we're going to have to push it out till the end of July. So in the meantime, we'd closed on our house here and uh, moved all of our furniture and things out. Thought, okay, it's just a month away you know, we can, we can make it another month. So we packed, you know, we had everything packed up and we moved here and into July comes and our attorney calls us again and says, uh, the ABC board said there's a problem and they're putting a hold on all licenses this month. You're going to have to wait till August. We're great. I knew something was wrong. <laughs> yeah. We knew I, something was up. They were stalling. We didn't know why. So, uh, August comes along and they said, we put a hold on licenses. We're not giving you a license. And not only that, um, we filed a lawsuit against you in court. So the issue was, and we didn't know about this at the time, but the issue was they had a rule that said you had to be a resident for two years in order to get a license. But in order to renew the license, you had to have been a resident of Tennessee for 10 years, which effectively means that you could not get a license, a liquor license in Tennessee unless you'd been a resident for nine years. No one told us about that rule. Yeah, it took us probably six months to realize why we were getting sued. Yeah, we were completely in the dark, had no idea why, no idea why we were being sued. And as Mary said, uh, has said numerous times, they could have just said no. <laughs> they didn't have to sue us. I thought right from the beginning, we shouldn't quit our job until we move. And when it came time to close on the house and we hadn't gotten our liquor license yet, I said, are you sure? Should, maybe we should postpone buying the house. And he goes, no, no, everything's going to be fine. They've already told me it's going to be great. And I said, okay. So we came, we flew out here. We signed on the house. We got, we packed up our house, delivered all the stuff here. And um, we flew back home and they said, well, we'll we're going to do it next month. So when Doug said, well, a month, I says, well, can you keep your job for another month? We'll just stay here so that we have an income. Cause I just didn't want to lose that safety net. You know, I, I wanted to make sure we had some income. And he says, yeah, I'll stay here. So he stayed one more month. We stayed a month longer, actually two months longer than we thought that we were going to because they kept postponing us. And he said, you know, we got to go. We just, we got to go. So he did. He came out here in August all by himself with Stacy without a van. And that was before grocery stores delivered. And I would talk to him on the phone sometimes and I would think, oh my gosh, how is he doing this? 
And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum. And what a family, what a father, and what a lady to step up and do what she did for this man's daughter. It is just there. We have a story by itself. And when we come back, what happens next you won't believe. The story of Doug and Mary Ketchum, a rule of law story, here on Our American Story. we return to the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum here on Our American Stories, a couple who had to fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court just to run their family business. We had uh, initially had negotiated uh, uh, an SBA loan with Wells Fargo, and it was you know guaranteed for a certain amount of time, but because of the lawsuit, um, we lost the SBA guarantee, and when we finally won in court, we had to go all the way back through um, the uh, authorization process to get a new loan. We, we lost our, our good interest rate, and because uh, of all the problems that we'd had, they thought it was a greater risk, so we had to take more money out of our retirement account, and we had to double the amount of down payment that we put down on the business. Um, so that was the money that we had allocated really for operating capital and to come in and do renovations and things like that. So uh, that put us in a, a tight spot financially also because we no longer had that, you know, couple hundred thousand dollar cushion to run the business with. Um, we had to put it as a down payment. So that's the other reason I had to really have a job is we didn't have much leeway after that. Um, we Now we got the business, but we've got a really limited amount of capital to run it with and we have to you know, be very careful how we spend our money and how much income and overhead we have. So Mary's the one who's handled that, and she has done an amazing job with it. We're not the kind of give-up kind of people. We kind of people that kind of dig our heels in. So um, we dug our heels in and and uh, went to court. And it took us, I think, about a year. We won our case, and that was in federal court. And at that point, the state basically was required to give us a license. They still didn't want to. They didn't want to. We They stalled again. They stalled, and we we uh, uh, actually went to a hearing at the ABC board where the uh, opposing attorneys got up and said, we know that the federal judge has ruled that uh, this is illegal, that they can't withhold them a license, but you can do what you want. You don't have to give them a license if you don't want to. <laughs> and the, the uh, commissioner... Uh, ask his attorney, he says, tell me your opinion. If I don't give them a license, what's my um, liability here? And he says, well, you're breaking the law. You could go to jail. And he said, so you want me to break the law and risk going to jail by not giving them a license? And and the attorney says, that's that's your prerogative. That's exactly <laughs> so, what we think you should do. <laughs> yeah. So he says, I'm not doing that. So we were granted our license. Um, they told us they would send it to us. And we still never saw it. We had to get our attorney to call the state attorney general to go get the license. So there was just a lot of 
uh, reluctance on the part of the state to grant anybody from outside the state a license. So the Retailers Association decided they were going to fight it, um, took us to the Supreme Court. We felt like we had to have representation. And at that point, we had a, a, an attorney call my wife. His name was Michael Bendis, and he was out of Seattle, Washington. And he was with a group called the Institute for Justice. He called her and, and told her, we heard about your lawsuit, and we have a vested interest in this case. They had fought a case in the Supreme Court in 2005 that they had won that was very similar based on uh, similar rulings. And they wanted to make sure that that case stayed won and wanted to know if they could represent us pro bono. And so Mary... I started crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at first she called me. She, she says, there's somebody going to call you, and he wants to take our case, and they want to represent us pro bono. And I'm like, is this a joke? Because <laughs> nobody ever calls you and say, we want to go to court, and we'll pay you all the costs. But uh, the Institute for Justice was, uh, you know, we, we met with Michael Bendis. He flew from Seattle down here to meet with us to, to talk to us about our case and tell us what they do and how they do it. And they were phenomenal. Um, I can't say enough about the Institute for Justice and how, how great they were and, and what they did for us. They took the case on. They had an army of uh, attorneys working on our case. We went to D.C. and met the people in the... Uh, in the Virginia office up there, um, there had to be at least 100 people that were involved working on our case. That's pretty Court. overwhelming it to was, walk into a room and see all those people that were behind the scenes that helped us that we had no idea. Yeah, it was, it was um, overwhelming, actually. Yeah. The, the Supreme Court case itself, we were able to fly to D.C. and go up and sit in the Supreme Court and listen to the, the arguments. And that was also a really amazing experience. Well, we were really lucky because we got to bring Stacy with us. Honestly, for me, that when we walked in there, it was kind of like being in church. It was very reverent, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a lot of respect. When those judges come out, I mean, you can just see everyone in there is 100% focused on what they're saying, what's going on, trying to see the innuendos and the cues and the questions of everything. Um, it was really intense. We, we got to listen to a case before ours. When they did finally get around to talking about us, I just had this wow moment where I realized they're, some of the smartest people in our country are up there talking about me and what's going on with us. And in, in that moment, I just realized what a really big deal it was. I, before that, I just knew that we were treading water trying to you know, make, make a lives for ourselves and take care of our daughter. But in that moment, and I, when I was looking at them, I was thinking, wow, this is going to affect the whole country. This is a big deal. Yeah, it, it is a big deal. We had one of the attorneys sit with us and talk to us about the process and what was going on. If we had questions about what the judges were asking, um, you know, we could, we could whisper to her and, and she'd explain it to us. Uh, but the whole thing was was really phenomenal. But sitting through the sitting through the hearing in the Supreme Court, it became obvious to us, or fairly obvious to us, that uh, the judges were were not very happy with the way the the laws were written and the way they were being handled in the in the state of Tennessee, and that our rights were being violated, and that our rights were being violated with no just cause. So they asked a lot of questions about that, and asked a lot of questions about why, you know. It, 
should be legal to um, make somebody have a residency requirement when the Constitution says that everybody should be able to go to any state and, and work and uh, have gainful employment without any kind of you know, restrictions. And so we you know, eventually won the Supreme Court case, which was great for us because we have invested every penny of our savings into this business and picked ourselves up, sold our home, quit our jobs, moved across the country, and kind of felt like we had the rug yanked out from under us. Twice a week, um, vendors come in so that we can place our orders for our liquor. And every time something new comes in, they usually bring an open bottle and say, taste this and see if you like it. So it's really fun because we get to try every new product that comes out on the market. Um, not to mention uh, over the holidays, some of those things are really nice. So these are gift ideas, and, and so we, I get to drink wine and, and some scotches and bourbons that you'd never think you'd get to. You get to try all these different things, and, and that's really fun. You know, honestly, if I'd had any idea how much fun this was going to be, I would have done this a really long time ago. <laughs> well, number one, everyone who comes in the liquor store is either in a good mood or in a bad mood, and they're in a good mood when they leave. If someone had told me what was going to happen to us, when we first started doing this, I said, I would have said, no, I don't ever want to do that. That would have been too hard. It's been very, very challenging. But I have to say that now that we're on the other side of it, I'm really glad we stuck it out and we did it. Um, I tell everybody the smartest decision I ever made in my whole entire life was when I decided to marry Doug. And I just feel so lucky that when we got here, I was with him when this happened because I knew that we could get through it and we did. And I'm really, really glad the way it worked out, um, that justice was served, and I'm grateful for IJ. And my goodness, what a story, and what a lady. And by the way, Doug's not bad himself. And by the way, wouldn't every guy want to hear a woman say, uh, the best decision I ever made in my life was when I met my husband and married him? And what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful family. And what a story. I mean, I just keep going back to that. I lost your paperwork. And by the way, no big deal. You just have to wait a month. I lost your paperwork. And in our big discussions about making government enterprises bigger, we like to bring you those stories and these stories for a reason. Because my goodness, the callousness of government enterprises can just be, it can be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And luckily, there were the Institute for Justice Lawyers, IJ.org folks. They do all of their legal work pro bono. And that's free in Latin. Pro bono is free. And they're out there protecting property rights of Americans. You know, we love what the Innocence Project does, and they free people who weren't guilty. And again, that's screw-ups of the government, too. Uh, But my goodness, when the government takes your property, and that's what they did here, folks. This family had moved. This family had bought a house. They had entered into what they thought was a contract. Someone said, go do this. And so they did it. Then all of a sudden, some bureaucrat changed his mind and their life came crashing down. And so if you want to support a great organization in this country, the Institute for Justice is one to support. Go to IJ.org. That's IJ.org. In fact, one of their early founders was a board member of the nonprofit that runs this show. I call them the merry legal warriors of this country, protecting the most sacred right we have besides the right to free speech and to think and associate with whoever we want, and that is our property rights. 
That's what makes this country hum. You take away your property, and you can take away everything from somebody. Again, Institute for Justice is IJ.org. Doug and Mary Ketchum's story, a beautiful love story, a remarkable family. But my goodness, what a story about real justice in this country, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our favorite thing to talk about is American history. And our next story combines history and culture. And as always, our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's Hillsdale. Edu. And up next, we'll be hearing from an actual World War II Rosie the Riveter, Milka Bayman. She tells her early life story and details her World War II experience as a riveter in airplane factories. She also chronicles her post-war experiences and describes being part of the Rosie the Riveter Coalition. Here's Milka. Well, my family is really tiny. I was born in Fairmont, West Virginia, a child of an illiterate coal miner who lost his life when I was six months old, so I never got to know my father. After that, my mother was fortunate enough to have someone send her train fare so she could come to Detroit. And then her life started all over again. She had a very, very <clears throat> harsh background in a part of Europe that was not developing <laughs> very well, living very, um, almost in a primitive way. So I heard all those stories and I knew that even though it was an effort to come to America because I don't think that anyone can leave their homeland without a wrenching feeling of you're leaving everything behind, everything that who, who you are, everybody who is responsible for your being on the planet. But whatever the reason and however they got here, I'm very grateful. And I think because I knew of their hardships that it gave me a special feeling, and especially when <clears throat> the war was going on and so many of our young men were drafted. They were going to Europe to try to salvage whatever they could of, <clears throat> of Europe. But then when Japan struck, that was a real wake-up call. And I think that even then, I was not quite 18, I realized that the Japanese had miscalculated. They thought we were very weak. We didn't have much of a war machine. The Depression put a dent in that. And uh, so catching up was very difficult. So I guess they thought if they attacked us on the other side of the planet, we would just be easy pickings. They had to have Hawaii. They wanted to expand. But they met an enemy that they never expected. <laughs> and it was a patriotism that kept us going. I, I get goosebumpy right now thinking about how important it was, my own background, because my parents said, oh, we thought we were escaping the Balkan Wars. We hope it doesn't happen in America. So there was a, a sense of fear, 
uh, living in Detroit in particular, all the automobile factories had converted uh, to uh, arming America, building planes and other, you know, jeeps. That was logical for Motortown. <laughs> but it was a very heartfelt fear. We didn't know whether our factories would be bombed because that's what we're doing to Germany. And so there were always rumors. We don't know what might hit us. So we were studying and uh, from the newspapers the silhouettes of airplanes, enemy aircraft, that in case some, an airplane flew overhead, we'd know that it was an enemy plane. So all of that added to the um, kind of insecure feeling that we all had. We had no idea, because up to then we were, since the Civil War, we felt like we're doing really okay, but you can't take it for granted. So when the call to arms came, I heard it from a classmate, and she said, I'm going to be working. And I said, where? And she said, um, the Briggs and Stratton plant. And I said, do they have room for more women? They said, they're clamoring for more women. So the next day I was on the trolley and got myself down to the factory, and they signed me up for a three-week course in uh, whatever I needed to know in, in riveting and the other side of it, the bucking person who flattens that rivet, <clears throat> and uh, so, some minor blueprint scanning. It wasn't as thorough as I expected it to be, but it prepared me for what I had to do. I started in early 1943. But the a big surprise when I finally got to the, um, the classes were held at Briggs and Stratton in some areas that they had reserved for that because they were training welders and a lot of other women to do different kinds of jobs. But when I actually saw, oh, they said, now that's a tip of a B-17, and what do you mean the tip? Well, that's the end of the wing. But it was on a platform three feet up off the ground, very heavy-duty superstructure of lumber to hold this massive framework. It was just a skeleton to begin with. They took us from the very beginning of what it looks like, and then they put on the skin, which is aluminum, that's rolled out to a particular thinness, and sheets that were already pre-sized to fit the skeleton, the rounded, portion and there was a crane that held women overhead to do the but we started at the bottom and there were two tiers of scaffolding it was so crowded we were shoulder to shoulder we could hardly move but everybody knew their job and it was for the first time that american africans were working side by side with white folks and there was never anything that would register as disharmony we had a mission and it did a lot to bring us together also, a lot of young women were coming from the southern states, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, and, and, it was, and they brought a culture with them that we, we Detroiters were not accustomed to. They were more genteel. <laughs> they had better manners. <laughs> they brought wonderful food items with them. They taught us all about pies and, and fried fish and uh, iced tea, sweet iced tea. It, it, was, it was a real addition to the culture. So I think Detroit got a real sampling of people from pretty much all over the country, but mostly from the southern uh, area. And that was to Detroit, well, I should say mostly from the southern area. But that, that was a very uh, amazing experience. Uh, we were behind in production to begin with. That was the reason that they had so many people. So they said, you're going to be working seven days a week. We can't guarantee how many hours. It could be 10 or 12. Are you up to that? And, of course, you're up to whatever you have to do. And my goodness, what storytelling by Milka. 
and a collision of cultures and women in the workforce. Two, that's a huge cultural change in the country, one that came fast and hard and would change the country forever. And by the way, Milka's story is brought to us with permission from the Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center. The Veterans History Project provides unedited first-person interviews for men and women who served our great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We, we were just the other arm of the military. It was like being in the military. You could not quit your job if it was too much for any girl or woman to handle. They just put you in another department, but you're still working in the war effort, but you're not quitting. And so that's how it went. <clears throat> I also realized early on, much to my chagrin, and I, at first I thought it was just a nasty rumor, but there was a certain element of men who resented the women for taking over men's jobs, although we were the only resource at that time. These were uh, harsh men who really not only disrespected but physically attacked women. One particular evening, <clears throat> I was asked to uh, substitute for a man who said he had to leave what we call the tool shed or tool crib. It was made out of a chain link fencing so you could see right through it. Shelves and, and drawers full of all kinds of tools. So when you came in to do your job, you picked up the tools, you had a slip for what you needed, and at the end of your shift, you turned it in because people walk off with things. So that just guaranteed it. So he said, I'm gonna be away for about an hour. Will you mind the shed for me? And I thought, oh, that'll be a nice change because there was a lull in my production line. So that was okay. But along comes this man on a bicycle. I'd seen him around the shop and he was a messenger and that was the only way to get messages to different department heads with him on his bicycle. And he was dressed like a jockey in the jockey silks, you know, and he had a little uh, Salvador Dali mustache and a silk cap. He looked like a jockey. But when he pulled up, I knew that he had a bad reputation, but I never really questioned it. They said, look out for, look out for Frenchie. He called himself Frenchie. So when he pulled up the doorway, he said, um, I've come by to say hello. And I said, what's your real purpose? And that was when he pushed me between two bins I was so paralyzed with fear, I couldn't even scream. I couldn't make a sound. But all of a sudden, I got this bright idea. I hooked my foot around his leg, and he fell. And I fell on top of him, and he was, was like this for a few moments, and I started punching him in the face. That's when I started to scream, and help came. Well, the best thing that came out of that was that incident spread through the shop like wildfire. For the first time, the women knew they wouldn't have to take it anymore. They were going to organize amongst themselves. And it went to other shops as well. But a lot of the union men were there. You know, they were always, you know, well, you have to join the union. I kept saying, no, I don't have to join the union. <laughs> no, the Constitution doesn't say so. I'm not joining the union. It might have benefited us, but they were part of our abusers, intimidators. So the women really took over because this abuse was not only con confined to shipbuilders. <clears throat> I don't know if you want to hear some ugly stories of what happened to Rosie's on the job. It was not an easy ride by any means. The women who build ships out on the West Coast, we know the armor plate of the, the hull of a ship is very thick steel. And there was a skeleton there that they had to work uh, <clears throat> at. And they had to put, after they assembled the hull, then they had to put a steel floor in there which had holes pre pre-drilled where they would run electric wires under that flooring. 
The men actually urinated into the hull. The women had no recourse but to work under those conditions. So there were men who were so hostile to us, we began to wonder if they were enemies of the country of some sort. They wanted to discourage us, but nothing did. You just went on. I mean, you were almost stoic, almost robotic. At the end of a day, if it's a 12-hour day, you're glad to get on a streetcar and go home. But seven days was required. We didn't complain. But the city did so much to keep us going. The Fox Theater was open 24 hours a day. If you finished your shift at 2 a.m. in the morning, you brought fresh clothes and fresh makeup, and you put on your clothes, and you went downtown, and you went to the movies, you could go to the nightclubs. Everything was there for us so that we didn't feel left out. Everything was to boost the civilians in whatever we were doing. So this may sound uh, silly, but there was a girl from West Virginia, and she said, well, I'm from West Virginia, and I'm a hillbilly. And I said, well, I was born in West Virginia, so she wanted to know the circuit. Well, she said, you were not a patriot. You didn't stay. <laughs> I said, well, my roots are in Europe, not West Virginia. But anyway, she said, it's okay with uh, me if you call me a hillbilly. And I said, uh, okay. I said, I'm not quite comfortable with it. But she's, and she said, well, try it out. And I said, well, hi, hillbilly. It sounded okay. I said, what are you going to call me? She said, I'm going to call you a honky. <laughs> but... So that's how it went. And Drusetta Duncan is her name, and her husband was in the military. And she was really quite, when we would have lunch or time off, because she was a smoker and I'd go outside with her, she kept it going. And, and she added a lot of humor. We needed it. But because we were so casual about calling each other names, you know, and the others kind of fell into that too. So that was a happy time. Yeah. But for me, it was particularly <clears throat> important that America survive. My parents said, oh my goodness, can it happen here? We tried to escape all of that coming from Europe. So, that. so anyway, um, <clears throat> everybody had their own story somewhere there because uh, one of the coworkers, Peggy, she was 44. I thought she was ancient. 44, I considered her an old person. <laughs> she was in for the money. She said, I'm a patriot, but I'm here because of the wages. And they were probably the best that the people were making at that point in time. I started out at something like 75 cents an hour. But pretty soon I was promoted to inspector because I was always curious about everything. So I was making a, a, a dollar and a half an hour. So just imagine, overtime and double time. I bought more war bonds, I could almost paper a small room, <laughs> wallpaper a small room. And I never cashed in the first one until I was 10 years mature. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but yeah, uh, everyone really uh, was very patriotic. They're all young, and there are others who are first generation as I was, and they have the same concerns. What's going to happen to America? So anyway, um, <clears throat> at that point in time, we're talking the the 1940s. Very little was known about toxic fumes or ventilation or the effects it has on humans. So about my second year, <clears throat> I start losing my hair, and I didn't think much of that, but pretty soon my scalp was showing through. And then I, uh, to disguise it, I wore my hair up to hide that, and uh, 
my hair was long anyway, so I was uh, camouflaging that. But when it got to be pretty bad, you know, I was talking to other uh, young women, and they also were losing their hair. Some of them had twitches in their faces. We were having neurological problems, breathing problems. But my department was maybe like this far up to where the light is back there. And they were making parts for the Vatsikorsky Navy fighter plane. No jets in those days. <laughs> but they, to lighten the load, the, the plane had very, very heavy uh, armament on the fuselage to protect the pilot. But they were trying to lighten it a little bit by making the ailerons and the flaps out of fabric over a very light uh, aluminum frame. So that was stretched over and fitted on the, onto the framework. And then they, they spray painted and put it in an area where the lights would dry it quickly and then spray paint more. So we're, those spray guns, you know, the hair is, is settling on your hair, on your arms, on your clothes. Nobody thought that that was a problem. And yet there was a fan, too, which just blew it around. So anyway, I had uh, taken a day off from work, and you report to the shop nurse if you're going to take any time off and when you're coming back. So when she talked to me, she said, you're a candidate. She said, we've been sending a lot of your young ladies who are reporting illnesses to the YWCA camp. It's on the shore of Lake Erie. And I said, yeah, I spent some time there as a preteen. She said, the YWCA is rescuing you. The YWCA is making it their job throughout America to rescue young women who need to be rescued by sending them to camps all across America. And you're listening to Milka Bayman, and she's a real-life Rosie the Riveter. And again, compliments to Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center, where we got this audio. And they provide unedited first-person interviews from men and women who served our great country. And boy, what things she had to say. It was real-life military service. You couldn't quit, these women who served. And there were some men who really resented the women. And you could just imagine and particularly the union guys. Maybe these women are going to stay. Maybe they're going to take over. Oh, my goodness. Again, that's why this is such a big cultural story. It's not just a military story. For me, it was particularly important that America survive, Milka said. What's going to happen to America? And so patriotism and a call to duty really drove her and so many women to serve. And the money was pretty good, too. Let's pick up where we last left off. So the YWCA really rescued me. And uh, so I was okay and went back to work. And then it started up again. I became ill again. So she said, maybe you need a little more rest. So it was very nice. A lot of girls uh, who actually depressed, some worried that they never gained their facial expressions back, you know, because they'd be pulled up or, or the lips would be frozen. Well, we were there recuperating, and I was into my second month. I was doing quite well. Uh, we were in the dining room for dinner, and there was a radio on the ledge. It was just, just about the size of a Kleenex box. That's too... <laughs> you would never imagine a radio is only this big. But that went on, and it was it got our attention because of the announcer was said, we have an announcement, an announcement. And he, kept, he was like stuttering. He said, the Japanese have just surrendered. When that was heard, we were so stunned. I'm telling you, the whole room full of us fell to our knees. We were just so grateful. So that was the end of my rosy career, <laughs> right then and there. 
but it was it was a wrenching experience and yet a sense of hope. But what happened after the war? The war may have ended in 1945, but the residue of the emotional wreckage was still there and you had to cope with it because so many of the young men and women didn't come home and you know which homes because when you're, you had a, uh, a member of your family in the service, you would get a little flag about eight by eight with a silver star on it. If that flag showed up with a gold star on it, you know that their, their military man, their soldier was never coming home. He was either lost in action or dead. So you were looking at that all the time. Your schoolmates, you could go into any neighborhood and that would be the topic of conversation. You know, and they'd be counting homes. They'd be counting homes, how many on a particular block or section. And so it was a black cloud that hung over us for a long time. It really was. The war didn't just end automatically by any means. And then there was an awful lot of controversy about the two bombs. How could we do that? We kept saying, sure, they're the enemy. Well, we understood that we were losing thousands of young boys in the, in the Pacific, in the Philippines, and all those islands, that we had to do something. It was a, a, a massive, massive thing to cope with. After the war, I said to my mother, uh, I have met another girl who is also having a lot of trouble coping. Uh, we didn't date. Uh, I was not ever, I come from a Beth ethnic background, girls are sheltered. You never leave home unless you're gonna get married. So can you try to imagine my mother's reaction? I'm leaving home. She was humiliated. She said, how can I face the Serbian sisters in church and tell them that you're a bad girl? And my adoptive stepfather said, my adoptive father said to me privately, your mother will keep you till you're 100 years old. <laughs> Go wherever your heart desires, live your life. <laughs> so I took out a map of the US of A with a knitting needle in my hand, my eyes closed, and I punched a hole, and up came Phoenix. That's how I wound up in Phoenix. So Barbara and I got on a bus, Greyhound bus, and we went to Phoenix. <laughs> oh, I was just bumming around. <laughs> Should I tell them? <laughs> I did something that young women did not do at that point in time. I met two girls at the same house where I was uh, renting a room from a wonderful lady and her, uh, and her daughter, and they were Mormon, and they were so good to us. And they had, uh, Mrs. Naylor had three sons, and they were in the occupational forces scattered around between Japan and Germany. And she was so kind to us. But Eleanor uh, was, and Marianne, they were models from Chicago. They were taking a break from doing whatever they did in Chicago. They had fiancés uh, also in the occupational forces. So Eleanor, who was the uh, <clears throat> very adventurous, she said, there's nothing to do here. We've done everything that you can do. Horseback riding is not going to do it. And so we were lying down. There was no plastic in those days. We were lying down on an oilcloth tablecloth that we took off the landlady's lawnmower. And we had our bathing suits and swim caps on <laughs> with the sprinkler going, rotating. <laughs> and Eleanor says, we must be crazy. We're cooking ourselves to death, and there's still nothing to do here. Let's go to California. And I think I sat up, and I said, well, I arrived by bus, and I don't think you came <laughs> any differently. <laughs> She said, we got thumbs, don't we? And I said, uh-uh, not for me. She said, well, then, Marianne and I are going. 
She said, oh, it'll be perfectly safe. She said, my brother told me that the Monterey Peninsula is exactly where we want to be in California because he had met, he was like 10 or 15 years older than she, and he said, oh, he loved the colony of swamis that were in Monterey, and he always insisted if I ever go to California, we have to find out about them. Well, the swamis were long gone by the time we got there, but we hiked from Phoenix, Arizona, hitchhiked to the coast. We went to Tijuana, Mexico, and nearly got arrested. <clears throat> Because Marianne said, what is that strange sight we're looking at? And there was this animal that looked like a donkey, but it had stripes. It looked like a zebra. So it was a strange-looking animal, but it was hooked up to a small cart with flowers on it. And for a dollar, you could take a little ride around the area. And so we were joking, no, we didn't need to do that. So I said, I'll just take pictures. Well, I took pictures, and we were walking away, and all of a sudden we hear this very male voice said, Senoritas? <laughs> And he was so good-looking, we didn't care what he had to say. <laughs> a really gorgeous <laughs> young Mexican man, and he said, you took a picture without permission, you're going to have to pay. And so that sounded okay. And he said, how much? How many photos did you take? I said, well, I think one was okay and the other one may not. He said, I'll take a dollar. And he said, while you're at it, why don't you take your caps off, ladies, and let your hair down? <laughs> because we had our hair up. We dressed like men. We looked pretty bad. And we had hunting knives in our waistbands. <laughs> Eleanor was very innovative. She was a brave one. Uh, I was a follower, but pretty soon it seemed like the right thing to do. And so we hiked along the coast with the most amazing kind of experiences. Oh, so many people wanted to shelter us and take us in. We took jobs. Uh, one in particular was with the... Um, a packing plant, orange, sunkiss orange packing plant. Uh, sometimes we, we let, we let, we, it was okay to deceive people if we, that we were men. We didn't take our caps off, you know, and we stuck together and stayed away. But, <clears throat> and in uh, the Monterey Peninsula, the, it was not developed at that point in time, two years after the war, just small motels, a little uh, business of some kind here and there. But if you've ever been to Monterey, it's, it's a coastline that is so stunning and, and the, those jagged rocks. So we would find little ledges we could sit on and watch the sea lions. Ours are, we slept on the beach. And you're listening to Milka Bayman tell her real life story, her Rosie the Riveter story, and what happened after. Because my goodness, after working all that time, making all that money, she didn't want to return to the old life and the old ways. And as her Male relative said, your mother will keep you till you're a hundred. And so she picked a place on the map, Phoenix, and then on the word of, a, of someone else, just picked Monterey and up she went. As breezy and easy as the wind, having lived through something really hard, and it weighing on her and weighing on so many Americans, because it's so true, the emotional wreckage was still there, she said. So many of the men and women didn't come home. They were lost in action or dead. It was a black cloud that hung over us for a long time. And her rebuttal? Live life. Get going. A real-life Rosie the Riveter story. In her own words, let's return to Milka. Actually, our first ride from Phoenix was with an old man. We left at 7 in the morning, and we arrived at midnight on Long Beach. And no development at all. 
a full moon. And if that didn't look spooky, you can see the ocean undulating. It looks silvery. And then there was these big round balls bobbing up and down. <laughs> but that we slept the night uh, on the beach. There was nobody there. We just lined up our suitcases for a wind barrier. And that's the kind of stuff that happened, you know, all along. And in Monterey, we were looking for a place to sleep. And, and we also took advantage of the YWCA's as we went along and Santa Barbara and different places wherever we could clean up and be human, be women again, you know. So that, they were a huge help. Uh, they never questioned our awful, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're grubby <laughs> from sleeping up. <laughs> so anyway, they would take us in, and the house mothers were not approving, but, you know, do your parents know you're doing this? <laughs> no, ma'am. <laughs> so that's how it went. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Takes me back. <laughs> I was making more money than my papa. Wow. Wages were very low at that point in time. For me to be making a dollar and a half? And, of course, everything was rationed. Shoes... You know, if you wanted fine clothing and really something, you could get on the bus and go through the tunnel and go to Windsor, Canada. They weren't rationing anything. So you could buy all kinds of finery and whatever you wanted in Canada. And it seemed kind of um, unpatriotic. But shoes were no longer being made out of leather. Everything was being saved for the military. So if you go to a shoe store to buy shoes, it's made out of a, a new product. No plastics existed then. So it'd be compressed cardboard of some kind that would wear. The uppers might be made out of a fabric that was flimsy, that was not destined to go into the military for uniforms or anything else. No silk was available because that went into the parachutes. Wool was not available in clothing because all of that went to the troops in Europe where it might be cold. So, uh, but the shoes didn't last very long. The arch would break down. But that was all part of it. You know, it, it was just, we were living on shoestrings, but everybody swapped. You had to have stamps for certain products. If you wanted coffee or butter or something like that, you could swap with somebody who said, oh, I don't drink coffee. You can have my stamps for that. And give me your butter stamps. And they said, oh, we eat margarine. My, my mother says, I don't buy that junk. She couldn't understand it because it looked like lard. In a... The margarine was in a plastic bag. That was the first plastic that I saw. It was, it was chalk white, like Crisco, with a little capsule in there you'd break, and then you could knead the package till it took on a yellow color. And my mother said, my family's not going to eat that butter or nothing. <laughs> well, she was from Europe. She didn't trust that stuff. <laughs> Every penny that I could really, I had... A Can you imagine 12 hour days, seven days a week, what I was making at overtime and double time? It was a fortune. So I was buying $100 bonds a month, and that, you could get a $100 bond for $75. And that would be deducted from my paycheck. A $50 bond was $37.50. I would get those every other week. For eighteen seventy-five, I could get a $25 bond. I got those every week. Sometimes I get more. By the time the war was over, I had about $5,800 in mature value. My gosh. And I wasn't going to spend any of it. And when I got married, my husband didn't know about it. Because I felt Rosie made that money. <laughs> and it didn't hurt because there was a lot that I could use it for. 
actually $850 of it paid for for a heating system for the house in Lakewood. <laughs> My husband said, we can't afford to put a, a furnace in this house, and the, and the contractor kept saying, you won't be able to heat the house with that little space heater, Bob. He said, this is a big house. And my husband said, nope, I've made up my mind. My mortgage is all set. I'm not going to start with that again. And so the contractor, Bill, um, Peter Contos, I still remember, nice Greek man, he said, can't you persuade Bob to get a heating system? We need to do duct work. We should do that before we close up the ceilings. And I said, no, he's adamant. I said, I'll tell you what, you price a heating system, and I'll see what I can do. So he priced it down to the penny, and he said, you have a choice of two kinds of systems. You're gonna, you can burn number one oil, fine oil, or you can burn number two oil, which is just as good, but the only problem with number two oil, if you don't change the filter in your furnace often enough, your ceiling will be black around the ducts. I said, I'll take number two oil. So it cost $832, and I forget how many cents. And I never told my husband. I don't think he even knew it. <laughs> Until <laughs> we moved in the house. It wasn't it didn't cool the house, just heat and it did a great job of heating. But that was my big expenditure of rosy money, the first money I spent. Imagine that. And for other needy things. Furniture as we needed. My husband could have lived with orange crates. <laughs> well, he took advantage of the GI Bill and became an attorney. And so it was frugal. So every once in a while I'd say how about I buy a sofa? He said, okay with me. <laughs> How about I buy this? Okay with me. <laughs> it worked. It worked. It got us through it. <laughs> I think as we get older, it becomes more meaningful because we're looking at the youth of America and we'd like to preserve it and we like to think that what we did was important. But we're also fearful that unless we keep some remnant of patriotism going, it might not last. And so the whole patriotic idea, and I wrote a book in which I have high hopes for it, but there's a lot in it about what this one character who is really a rosy in disguise <clears throat> But she's kind of rough around the edges, and she's one of the main characters, and I named her Millie, which I was called on occasion, too. So Millie's big reason, what she did during the war, fictionally, was to take care of some of the Southern girls who came to Detroit by having a, a small hotel. But her goal was to go back to Detroit and to see what she could do by inspiring the veterans of foreign wars and the American Legion. Uh, Rosie wants to go back to Detroit to fire them up, to do some of the things that they used to, because they started out in the 1800s uh, educating youth. They had scholarships of all kinds. They also had camping. They also were keeping the fires of patriotism going. Little did they know that <laughs> they were going to be looking at World War II. I mean, you know, and so right now the legions are dead or dying. And so last year I thought maybe I could do something about that. Contact some Rosies, maybe we could have uh, some kind of programs to inspire the grandchildren of what's left of the veterans to keep us reminded that it isn't free. 
freedom is not free. You pay for it. Everybody that knew anybody lost a child or a lot of nurses died on the front lines and, and uh, yeah, it, it still hangs over my head really because I'm afraid with what's going on in the world. I'm not afraid that America can't mobilize. We would, we didn't know anything about mobilizing then. We we're practically without any armament that our spirit would hold us together. But the enemy is much bigger at this point in time. And we could be hit pretty hard. But I think Americans can survive. I, I shouldn't say I think, I know. I know Americans can survive. We have the spirit. Because we're so diversified is what makes us strong. We're not just an isolated country with one language, one religion, one government. We've got it all. <laughs> we're like a, 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 a little package of M&Ms. <laughs> and you're listening to Milka Bayman and a real-life Rosie the Riveter and a special thanks to the Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center. They do great work. And you can go to atlantahistory.com and click Veterans History Project under the Research tab. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, some of the things that Milka said, I was making more money than my pops. I had $5,800 saved. I didn't spend any of it. That was rosy money. And the rosy money she deployed whenever she felt like it. Again, that independence that she got, that so many women in this country got, Becoming Rosie the Riveters. By the way, she was also fearful, unless we keep some remnant of patriotism, it might get lost, she said. Everyone who knew anyone lost someone, she said, and that it hangs over all of our heads still to this day. To hear the full interview and listen to other stories from our American veterans, go to AtlantaHistoryCenter.com and click Veterans History Project under the Research tab. A beautiful story. And again, send yours to OurAmericanStories.com. By the way, if you like what you hear, we are a nonprofit, and always we're looking for support from our listeners. $5, $10, $25, whatever you can spare. We work hard to bring you these stories. Not the ugly, not the bad, not the insipid. The stories that, well, we all want to hear. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a donate button. Give what you can. Milka Bayman's story, a real-life Rosie the Riveter story, here on Our American Stories. 